The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Today on the show, we're exploring just a few of the many citizen science projects that are active right now. Later on, we'll talk about night vision, nature watch, and letters to pre-scientists. But first, Marie-Claire Shanahan returns to check out Aurora Science. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Marie-Claire Shanahan. Here with me is Eric Donovan, Associate Professor in Physics and Astronomy at the University of Calgary. Eric spends his time focused on one of nature's most beautiful phenomena. He studies the Northern Lights. He leads a team of scientists operating the world's most extensive network of instruments that are situated on the ground but looking up to observe the aurora. His group opens up this work to the public through webcams in the Canadian Arctic, broadcasting spectacular live images. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, you're, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me how you got interested in, uh, in studying the aurora. Well, I mean, I started out as an undergraduate student at the University of Western Ontario, I mean, back in the 1980s, and I was uh, working for a professor in, in the physics department there for two summers, the summer after my third year and the summer after my fourth year, and I was looking at the propagation of radio waves through the Earth's upper atmosphere and how they were affected by things that go on in the Earth's upper atmosphere. And I went on to my master's in that area, upper atmospheric or space physics, and then ultimately at the University of Alberta where I did my PhD in space physics and I was looking at magnetic fields that were produced by large electric currents that flow in the region of space around the Earth. And you know, and I, my, my goal, my objective in life was to become a theoretical physicist looking at these, these processes that happen in, in near Earth space. And um, you know, I got a job here as a faculty member in 1997 and one of the very first things that, that happened was the guy who's, who had retired, whose position I filled when he retired, he had been taking images of the Aurora as a, a way of supporting space physics work over the last 30 or so years. And he really wanted that work to continue. And he was kind of upset that they'd hired this theoretical <laughs> physicist guy. And, you know, he, and he said at least he wanted me to sit down for an hour with him and look at some of his data, some of his auroral images. And I literally, I've, I've thought this, and it's okay for me to say this because I've told him this many times, but I thought, honestly, I'll, okay, I'll humor the old guy, but this isn't going to go anywhere. And I sat down with him and we spent an hour in my office and we looked at, at all of this beautiful data and I can say that I have since that time almost 20 years ago or 18 years ago I guess I have done almost nothing professionally that isn't related to taking images of the aurora and using it to study the region of space around the earth it changed the course of my life and the course of my work and it's really sort of transformed um, what I what I do sometimes humoring somebody who just wants to show you something they love turns out to be the right choice <laughs> well, well there, 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 I mean, there, there's a reason why he loved it yeah. and there's a reason why he was happy spending 30 years doing it. So I'm on my way to that number, sadly. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's a start. So tell me a little bit about what, what can the auroral images tell you? What are you, what are you using them to find out? Well, so, so what happens is the earth, the earth has a magnetic field and it, you know, like, like a bar magnet, a giant bar magnet sitting in space. And that magnetic field extends out into the region of space around the earth. And then the solar, the sun, um, it's, it is constantly emitting a stream of charged particles particles, uh, a plasma, an electrically active gas, which are constantly flowing out in the region of space, well, through the um, solar system. And we call that that gas, that wind, the solar wind. And the solar wind interacts with the Earth's magnetic field, and that leads to the creation of what I call the outermost part of the Earth's environment, which is called the magnetosphere. And that's like a giant wind sock sitting in the solar wind, carved out of the solar wind by the Earth's magnetic field. And this, this is a huge region. It extends maybe 100,000 kilometers in the direction 
direction from the Earth towards the Sun, and then we have a magneto tail, this 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 thing that, that extends millions of kilometers downstream from the Earth away from the Sun. And now in this in the magnetosphere, there's all kinds of things going on. I mean, it's filled with this electrically active gas called a plasma. There are large dynamics and electric currents and plasma waves and giant instabilities and so on. And all of these things do things to the Earth's upper atmosphere. They do things that they, they create and shape the radiation belts, and they also produce the aurora. And so one of the things is that we, we're, we're starting to learn a lot of the work that we're doing here at the University of Calgary supporting that. We're actually starting to learn how the, the, the processes in the region of space around the Earth create the aurora. And what that means is we can actually take movies of the aurora or images of the aurora, and we can turn those around and use them to tell us what's going on in the region of space around the Earth. And so effectively, the aurora for me is my scientific instrument. It's what, you know, I look at the aurora, it tells me what's going on further out in space, and, and you know, I have to use instruments to look at that instrument, but that's, that's the, I would say, the whole thing in a nutshell. Right, it's your telescope. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that made me really interested in your work, um, aside from the fact that it's about Aurora, which are fascinating, um, is that you open up a lot of it um, to, to the public through the cameras, through things that people can can just watch and look at. Um, what's the motivation for doing that? Well, so first of all, um, you know, one can always look at, you know, a lot of what we do, a lot of what I do in my work, we do because it interests us, you know, and so mm -hmm. we, we, we really, I really do enjoy Enjoy the fact that at the core of my work is looking at something on a daily basis that is actually really beautiful and fun to look at. And so sharing that with people is just, I mean, it just comes naturally to myself and the people who work with me. And so we would just like people to be able to see this. But there's more to it than that. I mean, you know, that that's, you know, I, I think it's nice for people to be able to see this and I like to do that. But on top of that, you know, I do have to get funding, right? You know, to, <laughs> yeah. to, to do what I do. And, 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 you know, one of the things that we are held accountable for is what whether or not what we do has any impact on the public. And one of the ways that we can have an impact on the public is maybe inspiring people about space and inspiring people about Canada's role in space and so on. And so the Aurora is a very, very natural way to engage the public in what we do. And so, I mean, you can look at this crassly. I mean, I, I would I would say I, I'm not just doing this because, it, you know, it, it feeds the funding, but it does feed the funding, and that is a benefit. Um, and on top of that, you know, uh, you know a lot of this... I have a very strong, I'm a very strong believer in open data and I actually think that, that, you know, we produce you know, copious amounts of data. We have imagers all over the place, imaging every night, night after night. And, you know, all of my data is open, online, available to the public. You can look at a lot of the stuff in real time. And some of the stuff is tailored specifically for public consumption, like the Aurora Max project, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about more. Tell me a little bit more about that project. Well, so Aurora Max, so what happened was... Um, I'm not sure actually how this really started. It was a group of us. There was a, a, a guy in Yellowknife named James Pugsley, who's the president of an organization called Astronomy North, a woman at the Canadian Space Agency named Ruth Ann Chacoin, and myself and a few others at the University of Calgary. And through a series of kind of chance meetings and purposeful meetings, we decided that we wanted to start a small citizen science or public outreach project organized around the Aurora. And we sat down and what we, what we did was we, we 
basically got what amounted to at that time not much more than a webcam and put it in a building outside of Yellowknife and then fed um, a not great image color image of the aurora to a website every 20 seconds whenever the sun was down in Yellowknife and, and it, the night sky so there was usually aurora there but sometimes it's cloudy and so on and this was was not a great image it was not a great imager it was a fairly inexpensive project in fact it's that contract was the smallest contract I've ever held and and we and then the, the Canadian Space Agency and Astronomy North worked up the web material that went around the stream of images and we went live and I think it was sometime around 2009 or that in that time frame and immediately upon going live the public just ate this up and so people people were, were looking at this website which was housed at the Canadian Space Agency by the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands people in Brazil and South America South Africa in Europe and 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 all over the place you know and I remember one night watching um, George Strombolopoulos on CBC and my wife, my wife and I were talking and we were sitting on the couch and and we had the television muted and she stopped and she was pointing at the television and she was looking at it and I looked up and there's one of our auroral images behind George Strombolopoulos and he's sitting there and we put the sound on and he was talking about these crazy scientists at the University of Calgary who were giving us the ability to look at the aurora while we sat in our in our living room and drank a glass of wine right and so we got you know what we found was that this little tiny bit of effort to connect what we do to the public had this really really significant response and so we've actually built aurora max up and we've got better imagers really we, we now we now have effectively magazine quality images coming back in real time mm -hmm. from from Yellowknife and now we're having discussions about expanding the project so that we have cameras and maybe a Callowit and white horse and a few other places and then possibly even expanding it over to Europe so that you know when the sun's up here at one or two in the afternoon you could sit and look at the aurora maybe over northern Norway or maybe in maybe in Siberia and then and we're also you know using this to to develop educational materials as well and mm -hmm. so um, and I, I mean honestly it's, it's it's not a very big project it certainly hasn't been a very expensive project but it's truly one of my favorite ones. Um, why do you think actually that that the aurora would capture people's attention like that? Um, um, it, it, it's funny. I, I, I have a hard time with that. I mean, it, it's not sorry. Not I have a hard time trying to identify exactly what it is about the aurora that makes it so compelling to people. So one thing I'll say for sure is that you know not all that many of us get to see the aurora in real life. You know, and I think if you've seen an auroral display, a really beautiful auroral display in some really beautiful setting, and normally if you see it, it usually is a beautiful setting because you got to be away from the city, you got to be out and about, and you know if you're going to be out at one in the morning, you're probably not going to be in an awful place. You'll be in a nice place. And uh, and if you've seen the aurora, it, it kind of changes the way you might look at the night sky. I mean, when you see this, this it, it really is a you know it, it's a breathtakingly beautiful phenomenon to see in real life. And our images don't, I would say, don't quite do it justice. It's very hard to capture the mood of being out in the north looking at this phenomena. But they are pretty cool images. And so what you see, what you're seeing is something that you know I, I like to think of it sometimes as something on our cosmic shore. Right, so what you're looking at is 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 energy and plasma and and uh, charged particles washing up against the Earth's upper atmosphere, and they're you know you know people say they come from the sun, spiral down the Earth's magnetic field, and hit the Earth's upper atmosphere. That uh, that actually is not a correct description, but they do come from space. These are these are charged particles that are coming from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of kilometers away, being thrown at the Earth's upper atmosphere, and then they're creating these these dancing lights in the sky, and you're looking at this cosmic phenomenon. 
enough, but really up close. And there's a lot, you know, and so I think people have this, this innate fascination with the night sky. And this is one of the most dynamic and one of the most beautiful things that you can ever see in the night sky. My wife's an astronomer. A lot of my friends are astronomers. And I always bug them because their sky isn't changing like our sky is changing, right? So you can look at, you can look at Andro the Andromeda galaxy and, you know, it looks pretty much like the poster I had in my room when I was 10 years old, you know, and, and whereas the aurora, it's different. It's changing. It's dynamic. And it tells us things about how, how the sun and the so, and, and, you know, that the solar wind shapes part of our Earth's upper atmosphere. And I think people, you know, I, I remember long before I was a space physicist, I was, you know, I think, I think I was in first year university and I was driving from Toronto to, to London, Ontario on the 401 with a friend of mine. He was giving me a lift out. Um, and it was maybe one or two in the morning and we were driving along 401 west of, or, you know, somewhere around Guelph. And, and I remember looking out the window and seeing some lights in the sky and I asked him to pull over. We pulled off on a side road and got out in a field and there was this fantastic aurora filling the whole sky and I had this impression of of being you know like being under a shower curtain and there was there was things raining down on us and it was this, this very fluid and very dynamic but also very soft and very quiet um, feeling and you know and that and, and you know interestingly that had no bearing on my ultimate choice to, to study this but when you you know you know I think people just they find this fascinating and also for Canada you know we're a northern nation and we align ourselves as a northern nation and and you know you know the aurora is one of the things that define us as a country it's on postage stamps it's on tourism posters and it connects us to Scandinavia and it also brings people from around the world to see it so I think I think I don't think it's a big stretch why people you know but I, I mean it's a very feeling thing too you know I mean I'm not you know you can't you can't explain feelings too much and people claim they're moved by this and I'm moved by it so I buy their explanation so it makes sense yeah so you mentioned um, having people involved in citizen science projects around yeah. this so not not just enjoying the images um, but actually contributing to the analysis that that you do tell me a little bit about those well I mean so what we do is we take images, you know, and I have right now something like, I don't know, 30 or 35 imagers that are operating across northern Canada. And every night when the sun is down, these imagers take an image maybe every three seconds or every six seconds or every nine seconds, depending, depending on what the, what the camera is and what mode it's operating in. And what that translates to is that maybe over the last 10 years, we've taken something on the order of, well, certainly way more than a billion images. I think it's probably closer to five billion individual images. Now, it turns out that the content of those images is actually important scientifically and so we would like to know and I would like to ideally have every single image that we have collected classified so that you know this is patchy pulsating aurora these are arcs and then we can start to build up a map of when certain kinds of aurora have have, have occurred and, and where they've occurred under what conditions they've occurred and there's great scientific value in actually classifying these images and having a data set that no one's looked at is not cool you want to have a data set that lots of people have looked at right so so we want to be able to classify Classify these images, and it turns out that pattern recognition applied to auroral images is sort of a hard problem, right? Mm -hmm. You know that there's 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 reasons why you know we've done some work with some computer scientists over the years. We've gotten somewhere on it, but we can't get a very reliable automatic classification scheme, right? right? So what I want to do is to is to to build up tools, citizen science tools, where people would be able to come to our website and be able to look at images, and then they could help us by classifying five or ten or fifteen or twenty 
20 images. They could sit mm-hmm. down and, you know, learn a little bit about what we do, look at some images that have been classified and then classify some and then become engaged in the process. And that's something that, you know, we're, we, there's, there's, you know, I think there's something that's going to become very popular in the future, you know, for this kind of work. But I think also, um, people can understand, you know, if they sit down and spend five or 10 minutes looking at our material, they can understand why it matters to classify these images and they can actually become actively engaged in real science. Mm-hmm. And it's also still beautiful. I mean, you're classifying things that are beautiful. You're learning a little bit about it and really, truly helping us out. And then on top of that, what I want to do is also work with people who are in, in maybe the Calgary School Board or other school boards, the province of Alberta and so on, to, to build up some educational material that would be organized around this image classification so we could engage students in the classroom and have them, you know, I mean, you, you could you could say be cheap labor, free labor for us in doing this. But I mean, honestly, to to fold some aspect of the citizen science project into maybe some more modern um, educational curriculum organized around imaging and, and and the role that imaging plays in science, and mm-hmm. so people can understand maybe see the the chain of science from the design of an experiment right through to classifying to to looking at the data, play an active role in it, and help us out while it, while they do it. Thanks so much, Eric, for uh, telling me about this. Um, and I know I'm. Gonna- to still spend more time looking at your rural images um, and uh, I'd really love to see students involved I think that uh, I think there's a lot of potential there for something really special thanks so much for being here okay you're, you're very welcome if you want to learn more we'll have those links available in the show notes for today's episode on our website scienceforthepeople.ca that was Marie Claire Shanahan with Eric Donovan up next Desiree Shell looks at a citizen science project tackling night vision Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm here with Gabriel Lucina, molecular biologist, grinder, and transhumanist. He's done work on a variety of projects, from plastic-eating bacteria to night vision eye drops, and that last one is what we're here to talk about today. Welcome, Gabriel. Hi. Now, before we get to the topic, what's a grinder? Um, so a grind, the, the simplest way to put that is that it's a practical transhumanism. The, uh, there's a group of people who basically, they want to be more than they are. They want to be more than human. They want to take the tools and technology that we have now and apply them to themselves to, uh, change, change their condition. Um, it's kind of like taking all of the stuff that we do for healing people and then asking the question, well, what would happen if you applied this to a healthy person? The more you know. All right. Now, now tell me about your night vision eye drops. Um, so the night vision eye drops are actually not as crazy um, awesome as everyone would think, but they were fairly cool. Um, and there, it's a simple mixture of chlorine six, uh, insulin, DMSO, and saline. And there's actually a whole write up about it if anyone's interested. Um, and you uh, put the eye drops in your eyes, and they increase your ability to see light in low light situations. 
Now, can you talk to me about uh, the team of folks involved in developing the eye drops? Um, so uh, I was with a group called Science for the Masses. And uh, what we basically would do is take uh, pre-existing scientific research and take it to the next level, uh, see what would happen if this was applied to human beings, kind of testing it on ourselves and that type of stuff. Uh, so at that point, it was just me and another guy, Jeffrey Tibbetts, uh, working out of a lab that we had built ourselves down in Tehachapi, California. Now, so you, you basically just poured through other people's papers until you found interesting and vaguely creepy science? Um, well, yeah, kind of. Nice. I guess that's a good way to put it. I mean, y y if you're interested in that type of thing, you, you read a lot of that type of thing. And, you know, uh, if you're going into the mindset where you're like, well, that sounds, I mean, because you always read these articles that are like, scientists discover this, you know, really interesting thing that's going to change everything. And it's like, when you go back and you read the journal paper, it's actually not like that at all. Right. Very often, it's just like science, scientists now understand what this enzyme pathway does. And it's like, yeah, that's not, I mean, that's important, but that's not a game changer right there. Right. Um, we haven't cured aging or something. Um, and so, uh, but, but it does sound interesting. And so we do read a lot of that kind of stuff. And every once in a while, there's something where you're like, well, wait a second. What if I just, what if I did that? That would be cool. What if that worked? That would be really cool. Um, but, but like, like the disconnect between the reporting and the actual paper, um, you know, there, there's limits to how biology and chemistry can work. And so, you know, we're like, oh, this is actually fairly positive, but it's not like I've turned into Riddick or something like that. It's actually more just like, oh, this is, this is cool. We've learned something today. That was fun. Um, as opposed to, you know, everyone's mind being blown. Well, let's be clear. I think it sounds cool is a legitimate start to yeah. this project. So maybe can you walk us through how you guys developed the drops? Okay. So, um, we had been working on a previous project uh, for human near-infrared vision, which is different than night vision, and definitely not just infrared vision. Um, and somebody on a forum that we frequent uh, was like, hey, have you guys heard about this? And they sent us a link to a patent that somebody had put out in like the early 2000s that was for these night vision eye drops. Um, but it was like a, it was a really strange patent. Uh, it like covered so many bases that it seemed a little ridiculous. Uh, you know, there was all this random stuff going on, but so we, you know, started basically checking the sources for that and found some cool papers. And we were like, all right, what if we modify this so that it actually makes more sense? Um, and then try it out because obviously nobody is selling night vision eye drops on, on the, you know, at, at Bartels or something like that. So, um, you know, it's just another one of those things where somebody's like, oh, this could be possible. And then they never did anything with it because the, the legality of testing something like that, um, would bankrupt just about anyone. Um, and there's, there's no call for it really. Well, but see, but see, that's my question. So there's, so, so this was written on a piece of paper somewhere. Uh, uh -huh. no one has ever done this before. And, mm -hmm. and how do you tell whether it might be safe or not for humans? Well, okay. So there's, there's, there's two important things. One is, um, we did six or seven months of research on the, on the, the chemicals involved and their effects, especially their effects on the eye before we, um, before we even, like ordered any of the ingredients or anything like that. Like most of research is actually research, right. which means that you just sit and read a lot. 
Um, and then we had like five minutes of mixing stuff together and dropping it in the eyes. Um, but you know, a lot of it was just, you know, double checking stuff, like looking for safe levels, all that other kind of stuff. And also developing our own safety protocols for when we uh, applied the eye drops. Um, and then the other thing is that, um, Jeffrey's, uh, an RN and I'm a molecular biologist and, at some point, you know, you got to be like, yes, it's totally safe to do this thing. Why? I don't know, because I'm a freaking doctor. It, like, it, it's got to be okay. I'm not a doctor, but he's a nurse and I'm a molecular biologist. And between the two of us and six months of research, at some point, you just got to make the call and be like, look, it's fine. It's going to be fine. This is why I tested it on myself. Like, oh. I, I, I trust I trust my ability to do research. And so, like, I went for it. That's all. Okay, so post development of of the compound, uh, how did you test them after that? No, I don't even want to know that. How did that feel to have it in your eyes? Let's it felt there. like eye drops. Did it, it felt- burn? Did no. It- the most annoying part was that um, we had to make sure. Okay, so it's we had to make sure that the eye drops were absorbed properly. So I couldn't blink my eyes. So we had to pin my eyes open. Like I'm sure you've seen those pictures. Oh, I saw the pictures. Yeah. Um, so he had to pin my eyes open so that the eye drops would just go on the eye and I wouldn't blink them out. Um, because that's what you do when you put stuff in your eyes, you blink. Um, that was the worst part. Um, those eye speculums, uh, are terrible. Uh, <laughs> just the fact that they're called eye speculums, I think really right? gives a right? sense of, yes. <laughs> um, but the eye drops themselves just felt like eye drops. It didn't feel like Ernie. It didn't feel itchy. It didn't feel like anything. And after they were absorbed, it just, I was like, all right, now my eyes are more, more damp. Okay, now walk <laughs> us through the, the study itself. How did you test this? Okay, so um, after we mixed the solution, we um, put it into my eyes and we did a lot of research on the proper amount because there was some potential that too much would actually do something bad and too little, it's not going to work. So you got to get the right amount. And then unfortunately, we had a lot of people there. It was kind of like we were we were testing it while we were having a party, basically. Um <laughs> And so, hey, everybody's allowed to have fun. Right. Um, uh, but so we did, unfortunately, it was a lot of subjective testing. This this whole first initial run that everyone's really excited about was just like the, all right, let's see what happens if I put it in my eyes. Um, not really the hard testing. We just needed to make sure that it was safe and that we could get at least promising results. And so it was subjective testing. It was basically... You know, we're in the middle of nowhere. There's a little forest out back. I've got a laser pointer. Other people are tripping over themselves. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm finding people hiding against trees. And then we also had um, a couple people act as controls. And we um, had uh, we strung a line um, and hung symbols from it. And then it was basically like, can you, you know, identify the symbols? Right. So just a basic, uh, you know, initial can you, can you see this? Like, can you see this? How about you? Can you see this? No, I can't see this. How can you not see this? Huh? That's odd. Uh, okay. So I, okay. A couple more questions. Cause mm-hmm. I, I have so many questions about the study methodology here. Right. Well, no. So, so this is, this is what's important. Like I said, initial testing, like right. there's a whole nother round where we are going to um, do this all over again. Um, but this time we're going to put an electroretinograph on my eye, which is a really cool device. It's like an EEG, but it's an ERG. And what it does is it measures the electrical impulse of the eye. 
So like you can say, Hey, I saw something or no, I didn't see something. Um, and, and you can get false positives that way. But if your eye is having like reacting and sending off an electrical impulse, that's hard data right there. And that's where it gets cool and, um, less, less, less interesting to, to watch, but, but more legitimate for science. This is Science for the People. And I'm talking to biohacker Gabriel Lacina about his night vision eye drops. Okay. Well, you started to answer some of my question there because, uh, in, uh, where I really got interested in what you were doing is uh, a fantastic article on Gizmodo. Uh, and you yourself referred to this as crap science. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it was super subjective. Um, uh, you know, we're all just like standing around in the dark, like pointing at things, saying, can you see this thing? Can you not see that thing? <laughs> Um, which is, you know, ridiculous. Uh, it's super subjective. Um, and like I said, it was, that was just kind of the initial, Hey, can we actually put this in my eyes without my eyes like burning or something terrible? Um, and there, there's more steps to it. And it, this is, again, one of those things where, um, you know, it's, everyone got really excited. And then a whole bunch of people started reporting about it. I was like, but wait a second. We're not, we're not, we're not done. done. Don't, right. don't talk, don't talk about it yet. No. Oh. But, but so that's great though, because this is, I, I think it's valid that people should get excited about this. This is super interesting. But I guess, uh, actually the Gizmodo, uh, author uh, had a number of really interesting points. So, how let's talk about how the rest of this study is going to actually, um, I guess, alleviate some of those concerns. Uh, the placebo effect. Could this all be the placebo effect? It, 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 I, I have to say that it can't all be the placebo effect. Like if somebody can't see something and then you point at the thing that they can't see, like you can't like placebo yourself to vision. Um, but it could just be that my eyes are a little better or that I got lucky or a dozen other things. And so this is why we have to use the electroretinograph and actually measure like light intensity and how the eye responds to that so that we can actually see, like have some hard numbers about whether this works or not. So, you know, if we measure the eye's reaction to a certain intensity of light without the eye drops, and then we measure it with the eye drops, and if one is different from the other, then like that's data. And will you have more people doing this than just you? Um, so this is kind of a, one of those icky type of stuff because um, like testing on yourself is totally okay. Um, testing on other people requires all sorts of legal whatnot and lots of money. And um, and this is where the whole uh, grinder biohacker model kind of falls apart um, because especially when you're dealing with humans, um, because it's just like, yeah, I can't, I can't do that. I'm, I like, I know the drops are safe because I put them in my eyes and it's been months and my eyes are fine. I don't know that enough to risk getting sued. Um, but I'm not going to sue myself. So it's okay to test on me. And that's about it. <laughs> well, and my other question, of course, is it, how are you going to figure out if there's any long-term effects here? Are you doing follow-up studies on yourself? Well, um, I mean, yeah, exactly. That's that's another thing that you need to, to look for. And um, I have had my eyes checked out uh, just to make sure that there wasn't any like small micro damage. Like maybe I'm not no noticing it, but you know, up close, like tiny vessels are ruptured or something like that. And everything seems fine. Um, also, the reason that the drops wear off is because 
all this stuff gets broken down by your body. And so, you know, it's, it's, I guess it would, I'm going to make a kind of a poor analogy here, but if I said, Hey, this is a really amazing steak. And you're like, well, that looks like kind of a scary steak. And you're like, I'm like, well, you know, eat it. Like, let me know what you think. You know, after like a couple of days, we can both agree that the steak is gone. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to be asking you, you know, six months later. So any uh, side effects from that steak? It's like, no, I, I ate the steak. My body broke the steak down. The steak is gone now. It's the same thing with, you know, a lot of the chemicals that we put in our bodies. I mean, some of them get stored, but... Clarny 6 isn't, you know, crazily stable. Uh, at some point, you just have to be like, it's pretty okay. So you're not worried at all? No. Wow. I, it's, you I know. know. <laughs> I don't know if that is just overly optimistic or brave. I, I don't know which one that is. It, or it could just be that, you know, I know what I'm talking about. And okay. Sometimes that. that's okay. It's, it's okay. It's okay to know what you're talking about and then just be like, look, it's fine. I may be a weirdo science biohacker guy, but I'm also a professional and I know my stuff. Okay. So <laughs> where, no, no. And I, I, you have more expertise in this than I do. I just worry for you. Okay. But, but that being said, if this does work and these drops could be perfected, how might they be used? Um, so that was an interesting question that uh, quite a few people have brought up. And uh, I, I think that, well, the, the ways that they can be used are almost exactly the reasons that this hasn't been developed any further by legitimate scientists or whatever. Um, they would probably be good for um, people who drive boats, you know, in low light, like at night and stuff like that, who need to be able to see tiny blinking red lights and who don't want to ruin their night vision by turning on the light to look at something. Right. Um, they would also be good for just in general. Um, like if you do a lot of, like we have some friends that took the recipe that we developed and made their own and went out stargazing and they said it was amazing. Um, Interesting. <laughs> um, you know, and it's just totally uh, recreational, but I see the appeal. Yeah. But well, but it's also like, okay, but then you're, you're out hiking at night there, and then there's actually a lot of people who suffer from a, a variety of diseases and damage, which make it so that they have absolutely no night vision. So if you could increase that a little bit, I mean, actually after these articles started becoming popular, we had hundreds of emails from all over the world, people being like, I have RP, I have this, I have this, I can't see at night. It's actually really terrible. Can you... Can I be a subject? Can you send me some eye drops? Will you take money for them? And uh, like, I had people who were like, my daughter is nine. And I'm like, dude, oh. I can't. <laughs> like, come on, man. <laughs> um, I'm a fully consenting adult putting stuff in my eyes. I'm not giving stuff to a child. Um, you know, and, and at first I was responding to all these emails, but I, I, I still get them actually. And it's been like six months or something. I am incredibly excited about the next stage of your research. Is there any way that people can follow your exploits anywhere? Um, so, so science for the masses doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, it's. I mean, the blog is still there. Every once in a while, I still post on it as a as a like a, a group. We're not really a group anymore. Um, it, further work would be posted there. Um, and you can also kind of get a backlog of all the other weird stuff we did. There's a really cool, like, wound heal gel that we developed. Um, 
And, but, uh, but in general, it's just like, I don't know, I'm going to tweet about it or, you know, blog about it. Or Who are you on Twitter? I'm Glimsed, G-L-I-M-S-D. Gabriel, you are very interesting. And I look forward to following your potentially unsafe and super creepy experiments uh, all the time. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. And that was Gabriel Lacina on his Night Vision Eye Drops. Do follow him on Twitter, and we will link to Science for the Masses on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. And that was Desiree Shell speaking with Gabriel Lacina. Next, I sit down with Robert McClemon to talk about the Nature Watch and Rink Watch citizen science projects. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. With me is Robert McClemon, an Associate Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. Robert, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. So uh, you are involved with a group of citizen science projects called Nature Watch. Can you tell us a little about the project or projects? Sure. Well, Nature Watch has been around for a number of years now. The idea was conceived back in the late 1990s, uh, before I ever became involved with it. Uh, it was an idea that came out for uh, what is today the NGO uh, Nature Canada and the Government of Canada's Federal Department Environment Canada. And they were looking for ways to engage the Canadian public more actively in the collection of environmental data and, and raise uh, environmental awareness. And so they came up... The internet was this relatively new idea back then. And so they came up with the idea for a website that would be used to uh, encourage people to collect data. The data would be pooled from around Canada and it would be used to monitor changes in our environment. We'll fast forward to 2015. Uh, where it stands now is that we have a consortium of groups. Uh, we have two universities, Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, University of Ottawa. We have uh, Nature Canada is still involved. We have the David Suzuki Foundation, uh, and we have other groups as well, such as the Toronto Zoo, who are helping us. And what we do is that using either a website or more uh, actively now a, a cell phone, your, your smartphone, to ask Canadians to collect data about frogs and toads, uh, about uh, flowering plants, about uh, the freeze and thaw timing of Canadian waterways, rivers and lakes. Uh, and we even have a module that encourages people to dig up their yard and look for earthworms and tell us what they find. And so what we do is we collect that data from Canadians all around the country. Uh, we pool it and scientists who work with us and just anybody who wants to harvest the data uh, can go through it and start to use it to understand some of the changes that are taking place in the Canadian environment. It's really interesting because we think of most citizen science projects as, as projects that have started up in the last couple of years, but I was surprised at how long Nature Watch in one form or another has been around. It was a beautiful idea that was years before its time, a real uh, credit to the Canadian ingenuity behind it. Uh, what had happened is that um, it had been in place so long that by about 2010, 2012, um, the, the internet and mobile technologies were starting to pass it by. And that's when I actually got involved with it uh, because usership was starting to decline. It was, you know, it wasn't new and innovative anymore. It'd been around a while. Uh, and so what we did was we spent a lot of time and effort uh, making it mobile friendly. So now if 
if you're taking a walk in the park with your kids, say, or you're uh, down by the river and you see a frog, you can use your smartphone to simply uh, call up a list of species of frogs that are native to your area and get pictures of them and even little uh, audio files so you can hear their calls. And once you are certain that you've made a match between the picture of the frog and the one you're looking at, you tap on your phone a couple times and it automatically sends the species, the date, the time and place, um, and the GPS coordinates uh, all to our server. And uh, so we can get the data very quickly from you. You don't have to go home and, uh, you know, log into your computer and manually enter it. I love how uh, smartphone technology is changing what we can do with citizen science and how people can engage. Because now this sounds more like something that a lot of people would love to do, which is, hey, I see a frog. Hey, I wonder what type of frog that is. That's really there's something there for the people who are doing the citizen science as well as you guys, because it's much easier to get more specific information if if someone doesn't have to fill in the GPS coordinates. They just tap the button and it sends it to you. Absolutely. Um, and you, when you think about it, when uh, when this citizen science initiative was launched, I mean, your smartphone that you're holding in your hand today has you know millions of times the computing power of what your old computers did back in the late 1990s. So it's, it's really remarkable. The other thing, too, is that, you know, so many young people, kids and teenagers, they're carrying their phones too. And we often, you know, harass our kids and say, don't spend so much time on the phone, you know, uh, get out there and enjoy nature. Well, this is a way to say, hey, okay, go out there and take your phone and enjoy nature and do something useful while you're at it. And uh, it seems to be, uh, to be a hit with people. So how has the adoption of this sort of ultra mobile internet based technology changed citizen science in the way you think about doing the projects? I think it's more a case of it's changing because it's still a relatively new phenomenon uh, that, uh, that people have have these kinds of phones in such, you know, they're so widely distributed. Uh, but what it is, is changing the way we think of things. For example, there's a professor down at uh, the University of Waterloo, just down the street from, from us, and uh, he does something called snow tweets. And so what he does is he asks people to use Twitter uh, to report to him snow depth in their backyard. And so, you know, it's just amazing what he's able to do with it, because of course, we get tend to get our snow depth data from one or two monitoring stations, say here in Waterloo County. But here we could get, you know, two dozen backyards in Waterloo County reporting the snow depths in their backyard, getting really fine level detail. So this is just an example of the sheer power of crowdsourcing this type of data using uh, smartphones. And scientists are really just, you know, we're just experimenting to see what we can do next with it. So this type of crowdsourcing of scientific data, I think there's probably some people out there that might be skeptical that the data is going to be of high quality versus the data that actual scientists might collect. So when we're thinking about citizen science, what is the actual value and, I guess, quality of the data you guys are seeing? That's a very good question. Well, the first the first answer to that is that the more data you have, the more statistical tools you can use to sort through that data and validate its integrity. Uh, so if you have, uh, you know, a thousand people across Canada on the same day reporting information about frogs, you can you can then use statistical tools to sort out whether that's reliable or not. Uh, but, but we can also uh, prove it just simply by the fact that uh, Nature Watch data has been used in science scientific journal publications that have been published in peer review as peer-reviewed articles. So, for example, there's a scientist at the University of Alberta named Elizabeth Bobian who does plant phenology, the flowering times uh, of plants. And she's published, I think, at least three or four uh, journal articles in scientific uh, journals reporting on how climate is changing in Alberta because 
of data, and she knows this because of data submitted by plant watch observers in that province. Uh, she can show uh, from the crowdsourced data that plants are flowering earlier. You know, by a, you can measure it in terms of weeks and days how much earlier spring comes now in Alberta, uh, and so that's proof in the pudding right there. From the standpoint of the users of Nature Watch, do you mostly see kids using it, families, uh, school kids, maybe through a school project? Is it mostly adults who are already super into science? What what is the breakout that you see of your user base? Well, traditionally, the user base has been, you know, the Tilly hat wearing naturalist who goes out on weekends with the camera and the, the photographer's vest and maybe a butterfly net or something and is out there actively bird watching or frog watching or, you know, uh, collecting pictures of flowering plants. But uh, over time, that is, especially now that we've incorporated the smartphone into it, it's starting to change now. So we're starting to see uh, school groups going out uh, with their teachers uh, and doing it more often. And uh, the David Suzuki Foundation, for example, has been promoting it as a an activity for families to get out and do on a weekend. They have these things called 30 by 30 challenges where they... Uh, you know, have different nature challenges for Canadian families that get thousands of people participating and Nature Watch has been one of those. So I think that has been one of the key advantages of having the smartphone built into the, the system now is that it's just broadened the base of it. So that's what we're starting to see in terms of trends. And we're hoping in the next few years that we'll see that even more. Not that we want to get rid of the um, the Tilly hat wearing naturalists because they are ultimately the backbone of these sorts of citizen science initiatives. Uh, but we want to make it uh, more of uh, a science for the people, which I think is a pretty good name, don't you? I actually do think that's a great name. (laughs) (laughs) So you talked a little bit about Frog Watch, and we talked a little bit about Plant Watch, but there are also two other projects under the sort of Nature Watch uh, parent, which are Ice Watch and Worm Watch. Can you talk a little bit about those projects? Sure. Well, Ice Watch has been going on again since going back in the early 2000s, late 1990s. And a lot of Canadians live uh, or spend a lot of time near uh, lakes and rivers. And uh, it's a good way, again, of tracking changes in the Canadian climate uh, if we can get the uh, the ice on and ice off dates of those waterways. So, for example, when a lake, the, the first date that a lake freezes across completely uh, in, in you know the early part of the winter, we want to know that date. Again, you just simply submit it through the uh, the computer website, either through uh, your home computer or through your uh, smartphone. And then again, in the springtime, when you see the first uh, gap appear in the ice, we want that date. Uh, because what's happening in terms of uh, winter conditions is it is highly variable across Canada, the trends that we're seeing. In some parts of Canada, there's not much change taking place uh, in winter conditions. Uh, but in other parts of Canada, there's rapid changes taking place uh, because of climate change. And so we want to look at that at a very regional and local level. So that's what we're doing there. Uh, the, the Earthworm Watch one is a different one. That's a kind of an interesting one. It was uh, established by a, a, a biologist a number of years ago who wanted to figure out a way, how can we get kids more actively involved in, uh, you know, understanding animal anatomy and plant anatomy and things like that. And so she came up with this idea that uh, it's an educational module. It encourages teachers to take, you know, grade three, grade four kids out into the schoolyard, dig it up and uh, find some worms and then, you know, lay them out on the table and start to identify the different parts of the earthworm and things like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I personally don't know a whole lot about 
earthworms, but I've learned a bit uh, by just, you know, studying the module. And uh, so that's one more of an educational one. We're not really concerned about, you know, the long-term health of worm populations in Canada uh, the way we are, say, with frog or toad populations. But it's it's more of a hands-on educational module. Now, you also personally helped co-found another citizen science project uh, that is undoubtedly important to many Canadians, particularly the backyard rink enthusiasts. Can you tell us about RinkWatch? I can indeed. RinkWatch was inspired by NatureWatch. Uh, and what happened is uh, about three winters ago, uh, my colleague Colin Robertson and Hayden uh, Lawrence and I uh, were thinking about, you know, NatureWatch has been a success, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there who aren't going to be out, you know, frog watching or plant watching. And how can we get them actively involved in environmental science? And at the same time, we had been hearing a lot of uh, recent studies suggesting, you know, what with global warming and climate change, Canadian winters are getting so mild, nobody will be able to backyard skate anymore or have an outdoor rink. And we thought, well, why don't we try a citizen science uh, program around that? So we launched Rink Watch. Uh, it was in January, three winters ago, so we'd already missed the first part of the winter. Uh, it was just a simple website that asked people who had backyard rinks, um, could you skate on it or not today, given the weather conditions? And uh, it just went, I wouldn't I hate to say it went viral, That's that word's overused, but the use of it exploded right away to the extent that our server started to crash because so many people were trying to access it. And so what it is today is it's a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, what you can do is you go onto the website. Uh, we, have, we have this beautiful online map that looks like it's straight out of National Geographic. You pin the location of your backyard rink or if you skate in your neighborhood park, uh, your local rink. And then on a daily basis, you come back and you report the skating conditions. So, you know, was it very good ice? Was it poor ice? Was it too uh, soft to skate at all? And uh, the last few winters, we have been pooling data from rinks right across North America from British Columbia to Newfoundland uh, and from northern Ontario right down into uh, the area around Boston and Chicago and, and one winter we even had a rink as far south as Washington DC oh wow and yeah and uh, and we pool that data and uh, we're already starting to be able to publish uh, articles in scientific journals about the future of outdoor skating under climate change so do you have a teaser for us of something that you found in the data so far sure well in the fall of 2015 there's going to be an article coming out in the uh, Canadian job uh, which uh, looks at future skating conditions in three Canadian cities, uh, Calgary, Toronto, and Montreal. And uh, what it suggests is that by the end of this decade, the uh, the ability to skate outdoors will shrink uh, in each of those cities by a varying rate. Um, I'll let you I'll let you guess which city do you think is most likely to lose skating days because of climate change? Oh, so the choices are Calgary, Toronto, and Montreal. Mm-hmm. I want to say I want to say Toronto, but I suspect it might be Calgary. You were right the first time. You should have gone with your instincts. Uh, it's Toronto. Gotta go with the gut. <laughs> yeah, they're likely to lose uh, several weeks of skating opportunities uh, in future winters because of climate change. So that's the kind of thing that we're able to do using the data that uh, that people have supplied us about outdoor skating conditions. Before we go, Desiree Shell sits down with Anna Goldstein and Mason Lohman of the Letter to a Pre-Scientist Project. I had one last thing that I wanted to mention, a lovely project that is kind of citizen science, but even if it's not, it absolutely deserves some attention. So I'm here with Macon Lohman, who previously taught sixth grade science in a rural low-income community in eastern North Carolina, and she is the creator of Letters to a Pre-Scientist. Hello, Macon. Hello. Thanks for having us today. Now also with us is Anna Goldstein, a postdoctoral researcher at Harvard Kennedy School studying energy technology innovation policy. 
and is a graduate student. Anna volunteered in 2010 to be a pen pal for one of Macon's students. She and Macon teamed up to recruit scientists from all over the world to make letters to a pre-scientist, an outstanding program for science outreach. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right, so tell me about the project. So the project was started in 2010 when I was teaching, as you mentioned, in a really um, rural, low-income community. And I noticed that my students, most of them hadn't left that area, um, even left the state or the city in that area, um, and they hadn't been exposed to a lot of different um, areas of science. Um, so their motivation to be really excited about science or excited about attending classes was pretty low and just weren't aware of all the... Sorry, I feel like I should start <laughs> Do it. <laughs> all right, that's from the beginning. Um, so the program was started in 2010 when I was teaching middle science, and my students at the time were from a very rural, low-income community in North Carolina, and most of them hadn't seen anything in the world outside of their small town. So that was one motivation. I really wanted my students to be able to experience different states, different countries, just really exposed to different cultures. Um, and additionally, um, we have a very low graduation rate in the town I was working in. So the idea of going to college or doing any career in science was just really not on their mind as an option at the time. And I didn't think that that was fair. And I thought that one way to overcome this was to get them actually in touch with scientists. And so the Pimpel program was kind of born from those ideas. Anna, did you want to add anything? From the scientist perspective, um, I could tell at the time when I heard about Macon's project that this would be a real hit because I knew so many scientists that were eager to give back to communities in need and eager to encourage more diverse communities of future scientists. Um, so I was uh, very excited to help scale up what Macon started in her classroom. Okay, well, obviously, I love this on every level. So what, what did the scientists' letters talk about? Well, um, they talk about anything and everything, not just science. Actually, we encourage the scientists to be real people in their letters uh, because we are real people in life. So uh, we ask them to talk about what they were like as kids and think back to um, what their favorite things to do were in middle school and share that with their pen pals. And then, of course, we want them to talk about their educational path and what they do in their job today so that the students can get a picture of what it what does it mean to work in science and to use your education for for a science career. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of piggyback off Anna, we had done an exercise at the beginning of the school year where I asked them to draw a science and I didn't give them any assistance on what that might look like. And I'd say like 95% of my kids drew an older man in a white coat. And they're like, that's a scientist. And it just became evident that they need to see that there are so many other types of sciences, whether it is gender or race or field, and just make it seem more tangible. Like a scientist is something I can be, not this one type of person. I was going to say that adults hold that same perspective. It's not just children. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so what do the kids' letters look like then? What do they want to know about the scientists? Um, I think it kind of changes throughout the year. In the beginning, a lot of them are, are just kind of curious about this person and where they're from, especially because they receive 
the envelopes with different stamps. They're um, kind of writing from different parts of the world, and they're they're really intrigued to know where this place is and how they came to live there. Um, I think as they get to know them, their their questions become a lot more formulated around their areas of science and kind of digging a little deeper into what does it look like to study this type of science or to get involved in it. Um, but they also definitely throw in some silly questions or just want to tell you their hobbies or things they like to do on the weekend. So it's, it's a mix. <laughs> So would you say that there are, okay, there's obvious benefits to the students that are involved in this program, but would you say that there are benefits to the scientists involved? Absolutely. The scientists, um, every year we get more and more people signing up, and part of this is word of mouth because the scientists that participate are having so much fun. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons for that is that it's so easy to forget um, it wasn't all that long ago that we were kids in science class, but then once we get to a certain stage of our education, you sort of lose touch. And getting back in touch with the excitement of uh, young people to learn things that they've never heard about, um, that is just, it's just a really good time. So the scientists benefit, um, no doubt. And so I understand that you're looking for more scientists to correspond with the kids? That's right. Every year we've uh, added more and more students to our program. So this year we're trying to serve 400 pre-scientists. And uh, that means we need more scientists than ever to sign up. We're getting close, um, but the more the merrier. We plan to continue expanding in the future. So people who sign up today will definitely be able to be included in future years of the program. Oh, I was going to say, we also have um, discussed doing some Skype ends with the scientists so they could share um, just kind of a mini lesson or lecture and answer some of the student questions on a more personal face-to-face level. So that might be an opportunity for people to get involved um, if they aren't able to participate as a pen pal. Well, I, I know we have scientists who listen to the show. So if they were inclined to get involved, what would the commitment level be? Like, what exactly would they have to do? So we ask that the scientists write four letters a year, and that just corresponds with the school system has four quarters. So each quarter they would write the student a letter, um, and we just ask them to be really receptive to answering questions and um, excited to share their um, just background with science. Um, and to be able to write on an appropriate um, writing level that the kids are able to comprehend. Um, we have kids from about fifth grade to eighth grade this year, and some of them are writing on um, a, low, a grade level a little bit lower than theirs. So sometimes being able to tweak your science language down just a bit so that kids can understand it and they'll be excited to learn about it. Great. And I think it probably goes without saying as well that you're especially looking for people who aren't what kids usually think of as scientists? Yes, absolutely. Um, we are very liberal in how we design scientists. So, um, I mean, we've had everything from veterinarians to astronomers to psychologists and everything in between. So um, we're really open to any form of science and just getting kids excited and um, really exposed to how many different fields there are. Cause I, I don't think they realize beyond um, the basic science that they learn in school that there are so many additional fields that they could go into. Um, yeah, we had someone email us actually just last week to say that he's an artist, but he loves science and got his degree in science and wanted to be able to share science with 
uh, a pen pal. So um, we told him to sign right up because in in our definition of scientists, it's just anyone that uses science for their job. And uh, that, yeah, like Megan said, very liberal definition. Oh, and I know we also have teachers that are listening to the show. So how would they go about getting their classes to participate? So if you go to our website, it's freescientist.org. There is a section at the top that says for teachers. Um, and on there, you can see a detailed description of what the commitment to be a classroom actually entails. Um, and then there's also an application. So you can share with us why you want to be involved and why you think that your classroom would be a good end. And we try to respond to those fairly quickly. Um, we did already select our teachers for this upcoming school year, but we are certainly open to expanding. It's definitely one of our goals to expand in the upcoming year that we welcome people to apply. I love this kind of thing so much. Thank you guys for being here and uh, explaining this and letting people know that it exists. Yeah, thank you so much for having us and letting us speak to hopefully some new pen pals that have heard from us today. Yes, thank you for the opportunity to share what we're doing. And that was Macon Lohman and Anna Goldstein with Letters to a Pre-Scientist. You can find a link on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. That was Desiree with Letters to a Pre-Scientist. We have links to all of the citizen science projects mentioned on today's show up on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Speaking of our website, you can also find links to us on Twitter and Facebook, and also links to subscribe to the show in the podcasting app of your choice. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.